ancestors have left us a wealth of archives, from early rock art to contemporary graffiti. I turn now to my conversation with Yelandri Apisami, where we discuss archives of belonging, rewriting ourselves and ancestral trauma. Hi, my name is Yelandri Apisami, and I am a media professional, a feminist free radical, working around the spaces of writing, of making zines, and general kinds of communication works for NGOs. I've been following Lynn's work for many years now, intrigued by our shared interest in the history of indenture across the Indian Ocean. I wanted to learn how she got into this work. Let me start with my father, which is maybe a weird point to start, but (laughs) so he works in government and he's been working in government since before I was born. And so I would be very interested in the stories he would tell me about governance. And that made me feel more inclined towards the political sphere, in a sense. And at the same time, at school, we were reading a lot of the Bronte sisters. And I was very into the idea of being a femme or being a woman writer. And so I had those two things kind of brewing in my mind as a teenager. I really wanted to be living in a cabin in the woods, writing things. And journalism was the more marketable way for my parents to justify that. They weren't very keen just studying an English degree. So journalism was the more useful kind of skill. It was really my master's work that prompted me to think, well, firstly, to even know about indenture and then to think about it more critically. I could tell through my work on domestic violence that the historical roots of violence within kinship structures within family structures in Indian South African communities had to come from somewhere. And where is that somewhere? Where is that not necessarily Genesis point, but what informs the current rates of gender-based violence or violence against women or child violence in Indian South African families and indentureship, especially when you're looking at Durban Indian communities is definitely, it was such a powerful force in terms of how families were created and then managed and structured from the 1800s that it became important to surface in my master's research. Speaking of her experiences with Africa as a country, Lynn shares the importance of intergenerational learning in an academic sphere. Speaking of freedom to articulate personal and political positions. At the end of the process, I became not only a more confident writer, but just a more confident person in trying to explain my ideas to other people and also not be afraid of talking about indentureship or Indian South African identity from a place of shame or from a place of I'm a spokesperson for my entire lineage. As Black and Brown scholars, we are often asked to mine our histories, both sacred and private, in the service of academic exploration. Having access to knowledges which have historically been left out of the canonical texts and theories begs the question of how we navigate our heritage in the academy. Even in making this episode, I had several reservations about what to say about my relationship to ancestors. I wanted to know about this affective burden of navigating this tension in Len's work. I felt that most keenly when I was writing my MA because there's certain kind of forms 
that your work needs to take. And it, at least in the politics department, needed to have this cool, neutral voice that we are taught in the academy to have about these things. And I wanted a hot, passionate voice. So it was a difficult conversation with myself about how much do you reveal and how much do you conceal? And concealing things is a strategy and silence about something is a strategy. And it doesn't mean that you don't know things or it doesn't mean that you have not done your due diligence with your academic work, but it just means that there are certain things that are sacred. So, for example, my field site was a temple and there's certain considerations around a temple, such as taking pictures or even speaking to certain people. There was a form of addressing certain people that I needed to take. And I took that on because I didn't want to come into the space and just trample over people's lives and things that they held sacred. So it was a touch and go kind of thing, really. And it happened on an ad hoc basis of, oh, this doesn't feel right. Like, I'm not comfortable with this. Or maybe I can take pictures at the temple, but it's only for my own use. It's only for my own writing purposes and not to be shared or disseminated with other people. But I think I struggled with that more when it came to talking about spirituality than indenture per se, because I felt and I still feel that indenture is such a marginal kind of historical factor, labor practice that isn't spoken about enough, not only in academic spaces, but just broadly. So, yeah, I didn't really have any sense necessarily privacy, but of sacredness talking about indentureship itself. Maybe aspects of it, but generally, I, I was just like shouting about indenture from the rooftops. There is something powerful about the excavation of generational knowledge. I wanted to learn more about how Lynn came to this place, where she wanted to shout from the rooftops instead of hiding in shame. Okay, let me tell you a story. We have to go back. <laughs> we have to go back to Heritage Day in the mid-90s. So I was... I grew up in White River, which is a small town in Bumalanga. And it's primarily like a farming town. So there are a lot of white Afrikaans people, a few white English people, and majority black people. So we heritage day at school, and I didn't want to wear Punjabi. I didn't want to wear Sharara. And I had already experienced some sense of Othering and otherness, wearing my dots, wearing my black dot, which my mom was very militant about me wearing to school and had already had some back and forths with teachers about, you know, oh, my God, what is this black mark on a child's face? And so I didn't want any more eyes on me. I didn't want any kind of visibility in that moment of Heritage Day. And so I had learned about the fur trackers at some point, and I was like, I'm going to be a fur tracker on Heritage Day. And my mom was like, okay, that's a bit odd. My dad was quite upset. You have a culture, you have a heritage. But I was like, dad, you don't get it. I just want to fit in with everybody else. And so I wore uh, one of my auntie's old uh, dresses that was very frilly. Don't know why I thought that registered as Furtracker, but <laughs> that was the dress I wore. And I remember feeling very dislocated at that moment. Like I knew that wasn't my heritage at all. 
but I felt almost safe. I didn't feel that sense of shame of like, oh, you're going to be this weird exotic figure. And at the point of being a child, I didn't have the kind of language I do now to understand what was informing that decision. And I also went to a Model C school. And at that point, talking about ancestry, like when you have to do those silly assignments of make a family tree and (laughs) we could only trace it to my grandparents. And when it came to great grandparents, there were confusions over names because the names that were on any official documents also are not the names that people used in everyday speech to call those people. So it was very difficult to trace what my lineage is or my ancestry. And I think there is also the question of shame when it comes to indigeneity and when it comes to do you belong here, do you not belong here, and being racialized in the way I am as a South Asian person, it often becomes a conversation of even in like White River, my hometown, people will often assume I'm a tourist, I'm coming from elsewhere. A lot of the street harassment that's targeted towards me is, am I India, 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 India. So there's always a kind of insistence on non-belonging, on placelessness. So there is a level of shame that comes from that to actually talk through that and also talk through not knowing your ancestors from a certain point, not knowing your lineage from a certain point, but still affirming the fact that this is the place you belong. In the literature around indenture, the Kalipani or the Black Waters figure centrally as a dislocating experience. I speak to Lynn about the significance of crossing the Black Waters in her work. Once you cross the Kalapani, which is such a great crossing, it means, A, you're never coming back to India. Because once you've made that, who's going to come back? And so if you're never going to come back, what does caste mean to you? What does your village connections or kinships mean to you? And obviously that wasn't the case for all of the indentured laborers, but quite a few of them, once they left India, never went back. Once you make that Kalapani crossing, your caste is supposedly washed off of you as well. I find that really interesting because, you know, so much of the conversation in South Africa is around like the land, rightfully so, because land restitution is a big political and material kind of reality for many people to have access to dignity and a good life. But I seldom hear conversations around water and how we might think of our ancestry as related to water. So for myself, you know, my umbilical cord is buried where I am from. So my relationship to land is physically tethered with my literal umbilical cord being buried in my family's ancestral home. And I think it's really interesting to to also figure how water is also a part of a way in which we are connected to space and place and placemaking, mm. I guess. Mm, I mean, one of the rituals that my family practiced, and I think I'm not sure if it's necessarily unique to Indian South African communities. I don't think so. But it's a Hindu practice where once a baby is born, their first hair, so I think it's after three months or so, gets shaved. 
and that hair gets put into whatever body of water is nearest to the family. So it would be put into a river. It has to be put into a body of water that will go into the ocean. So not a lake, not a dam. It has to be some kind of stream or river with the thinking that that hair will go via the river into the Indian Ocean and back into the Ganges. All this talk of indenture, I would be remiss if I didn't ask Lynn to offer us some spark notes, a bit of a history of what indentureship was, and to unpack with me how the afterlife of indenture shows up in contemporary life. The British still needed the colonies to be worked. There were still minerals and resources to have cheap laborers for, to get it out of the earth, to grow things, to manufacture things. And so the system of indentureship was introduced as a kind of stopgap. So once enslaved people were no longer, they were like, we're not going to work on the plantations. We don't want to do this. And some of them did, but majority didn't. And so India and China were looked to as places where you could access cheap labor and a kind of migrant working force that would come in, work the land on whatever plantation and just go back to their quote-unquote homelands. So indentureship in South Africa happened when British sugarcane growers saw how indentureship was used. I think it was in Mauritius. And they got the idea that, oh, Port Natal would be a great place to grow sugarcane, but we do need a larger labor force because the native population, the Zulu people were not about to be working on the plantations. They had their own systems of kinship. They had their own kind of interior politics and homes and according to the British cane growers were not reliable on the fields. So they brought in indentured laborers from South Asia. The first ship's arrived in Port Natal in 1860, and the last ships, I think, arrived on in 1911. So during that period, there were a variety of waves of indentureship. So the first group of people, they were mainly those who were general laborers in the sugarcane plantations. And as the waves of migration continued, there were more and more traders, known as passenger Indians who um, boarded ships to come to Port Natal. The one that kind of immediately springs to mind or maybe is the most urgent to look at is how identity was formed around alienness, around shame, and also how that has led to severe anti-Blackness in Indian South African communities and how that has kind of fomented in very perverse ways around being and belonging in Africa. And then the other big one is how that's manifested in gender making, because as the racial group of coolies, as Indian South Africans were known as, was made, as was gender. So there was a huge kind of gender imbalance in the first waves of ships coming to Port Natal. And so due to that, there were levels of... Violence against women happening. You could see that in indentured communities in the Caribbean, in Fiji as well. So I think that's one of the kind of afterlives that we really need to take seriously is just how gender and race were co-constituted. 
the study of indentorship is also the study of porousness and it's the study of how can we think about fluidity and identity without thinking about borders or with understanding that migrancy is also like an ongoing process. The porousness or fluidity of identification often rubs against the wall of rigidity of structural impositions of identification. I asked Lynn why her work foregrounds informal archives. Non-formal archives, like let's say if we take a university archive as a formal archive, right? Those things have been existing for years and years and years and years in ice cream tubs, in Danish cookie tins. And for me, it's been easier to access those archival spaces. It's been easier to look at a copy of Indian Delights and think about the women's cultural group, to think about Suleika Mayat's work through that, as opposed to going to the National Library and thinking about that moment in KZN's history through those archives. So I feel like alternative archives are softer and they're more tangible. They're almost less precious in a way, but more precious because people will tell you, you know, in granular detail about things that you do not have access to when you're working in more formalized archives. So for me, the value in that is to also understand how those things are living. So if I make a recipe from Indian Delights, how is that not a form of archival practice in a sense to be like, oh, this is a, a fricadelle recipe. Isn't that interesting? This fricadelle has come through various kind of cuisine histories and is now in an Indian Delights book. And I'm making it, eating it. It's delicious. But I'm also thinking about the kind of back end of that historically or socially that like led to this recipe being made and being codified in that way as well. But yeah, I don't know. I think I gravitate towards those so-called, I don't know, alternative archives just because they are softer, easier places to explore. And I find them a lot more interesting than going through court colonial documents from, you know, 1860 onwards. Mm -hmm. And there's more heart in those things and almost a more humanizing approach to whatever images or documents have been kept as opposed to when I'm reading those documents, like a court document and feeling quite disempowered through the process of archival research. From archives written across the Kalipani and tucked away in ice cream tubs, I turn now to think with our intellectual genealogies, rethinking the canon from diverse geographic, textual and sonic vantage points. Hello, thank you for having me. My name is Mohammed Shabangu. I'm a DJ, music curator, reader, writer and an assistant professor of English at Colby College. I research and write about world literature, quote unquote, with a particular focus on contemporary African writing. What drew me to the area of world literature, or maybe even just literature in general, I guess, was a desire to understand the world in an almost inexhaustive kind of way. And I felt like 
you know, when I got to uni, you have a whole spread of, you know, subjects that you can choose from. And generally, that's where your impressions of a particular discipline are made. And my impression of the English situation at the school where we went to, Alma Mater, <laughs> it left little to be desired in terms of the excitement and enthusiasm that one expects from an African literature situation on the continent. Mo's desire to think enthusiastically with African and world literature allows him to understand society in a non-formulaic way. But before we get into the thick of it, I was drawn to the image that was right behind him. But before we even go there, I'm looking at you in your apartment and there is a portrait behind you. Who is that portrait of? Why is it in such a central place in your home? This is a picture on the wall, a portrait of my grandfather, J.B. Shabamu, and it was taken in 1951, and that's just a year before my mom was born. And he remains, I think, an example for me of a posture or disposition towards the world of open curiosity. You know, he was a very curious person, a very intellectual person, a very smart person, and a very, by all sort of capitalist accumulation of standards, successful man. I really like the idea of, you know, seeing him in his younger years, which I hadn't seen before. I have a lot of ancestral kind of energy in here in my space. And I think that's part of, yeah, a reminder of, you know, that I come from somewhere, <laughs> you know, not just come from somewhere, but also that there are people that I can see and point to <laughs> that I know in some way are responsible for the field of vision that I scour mm. in my work. I wonder what that kind of impulse about fetching ourselves and placing ourselves in these faraway locales, what that is. It's possibly to do maybe with a sense of quote-unquote belonging and not I don't mean like into the space or like to the geographical or physical space but maybe uh, because this is an impulse I didn't have when I was in South Africa right like and I don't think I would it would have felt as urgent and certainly it would have felt important but it wouldn't have felt like you know I must do this because I have living examples of that in one way or another and I think it's the idea of being removed from that and then still being expected to tap into the resources that that you know, well, spring offers. But of course, you're unable to because everything around you is Americana, right? And white as fuck. So I know we're talking about, you know, uh, intellectual ancestors and so on, but I don't think that I would be doing what I'm doing right now if it wasn't for my grandparents, in particular my grandfather, who himself was entrepreneurial and enterprising and so forth. But understood, I think he could see something in me that I didn't necessarily, you know, see myself. So he'd have me write towards his moribund years. He would have, he would dictate things like a business plan to me that I would have to write out. I mean, we're talking, I'm like 13, 14, you know, and, you know, I'd have to write that out, read it back to him and so on. And it was like real stuff, right? Like not just sort of play, play kind of things. It was like real, you know, like he'd have me like write out negotiation letters about, you know, the land that he was selling and so on. And I think there's something about like the sort of practice, like a weird sort of 
brief protege <laughs> period, I think that had me comfortable with writing and imagining as well. Because I think there was something about, we often don't respect the imaginative leaps that entrepreneurs and business people have to take in order to bring something to fruition, something that exists first in the mind or as an idea and so on. And so I think like thinking with him, imagining with him, problem solving alongside him is possibly one of the early stages of something clicking, right, in relation to my assessment of the world and my assessment of myself in the world and what I can do and so on. A conversation I had earlier this week, also for this episode on ancestors, Lynn and I were talking about the kind of double bind of understanding that our ancestry, our family history is this resource, in your words, that is integral to shaping how we view the world, how we move in the world, what we see as possible, and also recognizing how that can very easily be co-opted into a self-exoticization because of the the African-only thinks from this uh, embodied place. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right, right, so it's, it's right. definitely something that's been on my mind as like I'm thinking right. about this, this episode is just like how I want to be careful to not slip into the latter of asking you to self-exoticize, but also recognizing that like all intellectual traditions come from somewhere. It's just that other people's intellectual traditions are taken as normative. And like, of course, Russian scholars are going to write about the imaginary of Russia and the same with Welsh writers. And yet when an African writer does the similar thing, something else happens. And I'm I'm curious because of your interest in kind of world literatures and specifically that paper you wrote uh, in 2018, Refusing Interpolation. I'm curious how you kind of square these two desires of both grounding and also recognizing that often when brown and black folk are doing that grounding work, situating themselves, positioning themselves, it, it turns into a a box that won't allow us to think other things. It is a double bind, and we are susceptible to self-exoticization. But then the question is, you know, exoticization to whom, right? Like, exoticization is always externalized. There's got to be an other to the exotic subject, let's say. And then the question is, for whom, right? Like, why is that presumed to be, you know, a gesture of exoticization only in the presence of this other, right? And this normative other that you're, that you're talking about. So I think, yeah, you're right. There's definitely a slippery slope, I think, in uncritically pursuing that line of thought. But I also think that an ungrounded and whatever the, the grounds of the grounding, an ungrounded spirit is as detrimental as a fully fixed and grounded epistemology or, you know, spiritual impulse. And so I think there's a straddling and that's one that you know, we have been doing as Black people, as Africans, for centuries, right? To me, it almost harkens back to this sort of tradition modernity dialectic, which, you know, is a Eurocentric discursive practice as a way of proceeding with an understanding of oneself. I prefer to think 
of this not as a grounding that assumes authenticity and a kind of fixity yeah fixity and return even right to that fixity but yeah i think i'm in that paper that you mentioned refusing interpolation i was thinking about precisely this question right that you could say the same thing that a euro-american writer you know says or writes about and yet your work will always be brought back to or your artistic expression is always you know reduced to the clash between your social concerns and your artistic, you know, as if there is even that kind of split. But what I was trying to do with the paper was to speak to an impossible position, which is to say a position that cannot be resolved, but can only ever really be negotiated. And this, of course, can be extrapolated to various other domains, not just literature, world literature, but any other kind of interface in which the world literary arena, you know, adjudicates the extent of your artistic achievements and so on, or, you know, political contributions or what have you. But in any situation where there is that externalized thing that I was talking about at the beginning, right, like the idea that to exoticize assumes a certain externality or a certain exteriority and then the question again is to whom and what kind of you know institutional mechanisms of power are in place to determine literary and artistic success so it's not so much something that i think people can break out of or resolve and that is the nature of a double bind it is the, the thing that that calls to our attention precisely because it is impossible, right? And it is that impossibility that calls for, you know, a constant negotiation. In a way where I don't want to say it's stuck, you know, but we can't undo the instantiation of world literature, right? But we can bypass it in certain ways. And I think one of the ways is by demurring when it comes to playing the tradition modernity kind of dialectic in the way that presumes a fixity on the one hand and an ongoing kind of march towards <laughs> whatever progress. And I was thinking particularly as I was preparing for our, in- our conversation interview today, I was reading the essay written by Professor Olufemi Taiwo. I don't know if you're familiar with their work. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I-, I was reading the essay for the first time, well, this essay, which is titled Being in the Room Privilege, Elite Capture and Epistemic Difference. And in this paper, Professor Taiwo speaks about standpoint epistemology, you know, speaking about how you are socially situated affects what you know. And this is, you know, feminists have been talking about this for a long time. Marx was talking about this for a long time. This is not a novel idea, but I thought what was deeply, deeply important was the way in which they kind of foreground the way in which I guess when we're being glib, we call it virtue signaling, but they're talking about the ways in which we have substituted kind of restitution for deference. So we're going to say things like land acknowledgements. We're going to say things like Black Lives Matter. We're going to say things like put more African scholars in the curriculum as a gesture towards deference. And I, I think what they do really incredibly in this essay is kind of demonstrate why difference is not necessarily an appropriate response to a call for restitution. And I'm curious in your own work, especially because, you know, it it just spoke so perfectly to your article 
on refusing interpolation. I'm curious to hear how you reflect on the significance of standpoint and how you reflect on what positionality does and what it doesn't do in the kind of real world situations where there are calls for restitution and needs for restitution. So my interest in that question, and I read it less as a solve the world question than as a perennial philosophical problem, right? And I think this is this is something that we've heard before, the idea that, you know, there are material concerns. And so, you know, how are we, you know, balancing the need to attend to those versus the abstraction that we get taken up in philosophizing and so on? That's an old kind of question. The reason I bring that up is because what you're saying amounts to <laughs> the thesis 11 of Marx's thesis, which is that the philosophers have merely interpreted the world. The point, however, is to change it, right? And the idea is that we're preoccupying ourselves with an interpretation of the world, whereas the point is to change it. And then at the same time, you're having to balance the idea that there is something quite practical, there is something quite material in thinking and in thought, right? I don't know that it's the presumption or the premise of the distinction between you know thought and action is as unquestioning as it often presumes to be right like when these questions are put to us because i consider what we are doing to be a practice right someone like fred moton might call this a practice of black study right which in itself has resonance and vibrations and, and affective consequences right so yeah so i think there's that tension between thought that is expected to lead to action and then also action that cannot actually uh, go anywhere without thought because after action comes thought anyway right 1994 was a moment of action right or the post apart however you want to you know uh, you might assess the efficacy of that action in whatever way you wish right but there is a rupture a moment and you can talk about this in revolutionary terms where there have been less smooth transitions but that is a moment of action. And then what comes after action, right? Thought is what we're back to that, right? The point, I guess, of what I'm trying to say is that whatever fruits are born from any action that is taken will need to be sustained by thought, mm. will need to be sustained by a cultivated sense of thinking is important and is as important. I think, as the material concerns, because thinking actually turns out is material. In Mo's work and practice, they invite us to consider that the ground upon which we make claims about our standing or positionality is, in and of itself, continuously shifting, inviting us to pay attention to how we read with new points of emphasis as the ground shifts. There is something between the past that gives you your identity and the future that calls for your identity. There's something on that temporal spectrum that is the, the present that I think requires a balance both of that historical knowledge of yourself as well as, yeah, knowledge of yourself in time. But one of the things that I say to my students is I want them to think of identification as Americans would say routes as opposed yeah. to routes, right? So as a pathway a ground that is shifting as opposed to a rootedness that is 
and moving, which is, you know, now that we've got Anand Singh's amazing work on mushrooms, might actually force me to <laughs> reconsider my beautifully crafted metaphor around the problem with the root. Mahita was kind of reflecting on the color blue, reflecting a lot on water. And I guess to stick with these very unwieldy metaphors, there is something for me that is important about being an academic citizen, about someone just interested in, in thinking in the world, is that these things are supposed to offer us rafts. They're supposed to offer us something that we can hold on to while we swim in these waters that, yes, we might name as the modern tradition dialectic. We might name as, you know, an urgent call for decolonization. We might name them in all kinds of different phrases, depending on the action we want to take. But for me, the value of universities and the value of just us thinking in community, which happens also outside of the university, obviously, it's is what are these rafts that we're holding on to? And particularly, I'm interested in how do you build your rafts? What intellectual genealogies do you cobble together to kind of create a raft for yourself to swim through these these waters? They could both be, you know, people you, you found in the academy or elsewhere. But I'm just curious to know who is in your intellectual genealogy that helps you build these rafts so that you don't drown. I try not to be over-determined by a specific intellectual genealogy, so to speak. So if I say, like, I wouldn't identify, I'm not certainly not like post-colonial or like, you know, Afro-Pesimist or like any of that stuff. If I say I'm a Marxist, that's something that I think, you know, translates outside of the academy. And it's not so much, you know, something that I'm thinking about in academic terms. But I would say in terms of an intellectual genealogy of the type that you're that I think you're referring to, I also tried to be, and I, I heard Kaguru say this at some point, be promiscuous with your reading. Right. Like don't be like monogamously wedded to one school of thought. And so I try to be as promiscuous as I can. I'm a literary person, but I read things, you know, and I have anchors, you know, that aren't exactly literary figures or, you know, writers. So what I will say before, you know, getting to the meat of your question is that I also really appreciate writers who are fluid. I appreciate thinkers that, you know, can change their minds. And of course, that also comes with time and how long one lives and so on, right? Like I imagine there are a couple of things that Fanon may have, you know, adjusted had he not died at age 27, right? Like, so that's also something to think about. But you can tell the capacity for, you know, fluidity, or you can tell you know, whether someone is a mushroom or, uh, you know, firmly rooted tree in terms of their intellectual grounding, you can tell by the way that they invite the world to scrutinize, right, rather than being prescriptive. I don't like prescriptive thinking. Of course, there are moments that call for that. So there are moments that call for like that kind of prescriptive writing. And then there are moments that, which are the moments that I like to linger in, um, where I'm you know, invited to imagine something irreducible or incalculable. So a lot of the times I find myself drawn, for instance, to Derridian type of analysis, right? Which I know is a pretty 
shameful thing to say, perhaps. <laughs> it's a vulgar thing to say. It's a vulgar thing to say sometimes, because then again, it's the material versus immaterial debate, right? It's like, oh, you want to wax lyrical about XYZ when there's, you know, this, this and that. But I really appreciate Derrida's concern, for instance, with the idea of a haunting or the spectre that he writes about in Spectres of Marx. It's a very different approach, I think, to contemporary socio-political economics that I've encountered in other philosophers. I appreciate the idea of the eternal return of the repressed. So yeah, so I think Derrida and his offsprings, there are some obviously like pretty wacky people that I still find very, very interesting. And I think what I mean by the voice of, and it's never the voice of, obviously, but I think someone that echoes a certain pulse, you know, that's detectable, that they firstly can observe and then detect a pulse, right, that we can't ourselves. Someone who's a seer in, in some kind of way. This is what I think about when I think about like Salt Lake and I think about people like Steve Biko. These are people who, yes, we're dealing with a contemporary moment and not just like futurist or like, you know, in that sort of like leap of imagination into, you know, time ahead. But I'm, I'm thinking more like somebody that can accurately reflect us to ourselves but also, and now this is not a somebody, but I'm talking about a body of work. It could be a body of, you know, thoughts. It could be, you know, I don't have that that I could say, you know, continentally. Honestly, not no smoke around you. I was going to say something crude, <laughs> not to gas you up, but I definitely feel that like, reading your work, reading our dear friend Julie Ngadi's work, I often feel that the way in which uh, you are able to both be attentive to the present moment that you're at, where you got, how you got there, and also perhaps show what directions we might be going in. I see that often in the way that a lot of my friends are working, particularly because I love the fact that you merge both a serious commitment and rigorous commitment to what is called like classical academic scholarship and also you're a DJ and the way in which you think through your playlists and curate experiences using music, using our friends who make collages. That for me is so exciting because it's kind of exploding what we might have historically perceived as the legitimate locus of like intellectual work. It's like, actually, it is legitimate to make podcasts. It is completely legitimate to make <laughs> playlists. It is legitimate to make collages. Precisely because, not that the book is dead, it will never die, but more so to, to attend to the fact that in the 21st century, we have so many more tools to express a new vocabulary. And we haven't found that vocabulary yet, but we're at least kind of cobbling together these different media that for me, I find very exciting in in what we're doing and what a lot of our friends are doing. I am just like mind blown. The new vocabularies that Mo weaves together to build his raft are not only academic, but also sonic. I was interested to learn how he thinks about the relationship between his music curatorial practice and his literary interests. So I come to world music through world literature. 
And I was thinking about the ways in which music articulates a lot of the political life world of the books that I was reading. So I'm reading something by an Ethiopian writer, Din Amengestu, for instance, and thinking about some Ethiopian musicians operating or active around the time that he's writing about and Ethiopian musicians who like fled, you know, the Red Terror or whatever end up in DC only to be discovered, you know, much later, like rediscover or maybe not discovered, but you know what I mean, like take off in 2021 or whatever. This is interesting to me, like those, you know, networks that flow, that algorithm of life is very interesting one to me. And so I want to, you know, use music with its atemporal kind of force as a way to help me read some of the literature that I'm thinking about. So my book will involve an analysis of both African and African music interspersed. From rock art to complex reflections on belonging, this episode has been a journey through ancestry. The afterlife is a strange thing to ponder. It disrupts the taken-for-granted logic of linear time to conflate is and was. To quote Faulkner's Requiem for a Nun, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Ancestors don't just pass down the genetic baton and disappear from view. They can linger with us, show up in unexpected texts and sonic forms, whispering and shouting for our attention. Our ancestors offer us topographical maps written in a myriad of forms. May we learn to be rigorous and curious readers. Do join us next month as we explore these ideas further with Breath. It's now time to read the room. Chasworth is a collection of short stories from Provis and Pillay. And as the name states, it's different short stories that are all located in Chatsworth or surrounds in KZN. And that is a Indian township slash suburb area. A lot of working class, poor Indian and black people live in the area. And the reason why I love this book is because it's a work of fiction. However, the way in which Pravison creates his characters are so just tender. They're so careful and caring. And these are characters that demonstrate the kind of spectrum of human emotion. And oftentimes in fictional work I've read or watched that has to do with Indian South African lives and livelihoods and families, we are not offered the full spectrum of human experience and emotion and desire. So in these stories, he delves into it in a variety of different ways. There's a story about a ghost. There's a story about um, a Indian woman with albinism in apartheid South Africa. There's also a wonderful story about teenage desire and Indian girlhood and longing. I strongly suggest this book. The Academic Citizen is produced and funded by the South African Research Chair in Science Communication, hosted at Stellenbosch University. The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating higher education in South Africa, Africa, the Global South, and beyond. 
create a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators, help researchers, educators, and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences, and create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice broadly conceived. We welcome your feedback, opinions, and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or visit our website www.the-academic-citizen.org. This episode was hosted and written by Nosipom Gomezulu, sound edited by Victoria Dalahop, scripting and production assistance by Taryn Mackay and Fumani Mabuhwani, and Fumani Mabuhwani who provides communication support. We thank Yolendri Apasami, Muhammad Shabangu, and Sven Osman for contributing to this episode. Mm-hmm.